If you have not opened your Bibles yet, please do so to 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, We're going to be in verses 1 through 13, as uh, Chuck read for us. And this fall, we have been working our way through 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 11. And so far in chapters 8 and 9, we have seen the Apostle Paul has been pressing on the church at Corinth regarding this truth. Knowledge builds up, or knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he was pressing on the Corinthians because the Corinthians wanted to use their knowledge and their theology to grab identity and status. They wanted those things to give them power so that they could justify behavior, justify even things that were outright sinful. And they believed that if they had the right knowledge and the right theology that gave them the right status, well, then they were somebody. And they could even press against the Apostle Paul. And so he's writing them a letter to remind them, hey, theology matters. Deep biblical knowledge and theology matters. Our our spiritual lives are hollowed out when we do not have those. But here is the fruit of true theological maturity. Love. Love and sacrifice. So much so, as we've seen the past few weeks, you're willing to lay down your rights, lay down privileges, lay down things that you have in Christ in order that others may know Jesus and be built up in him. That's theological maturity. That's what our work of theology and Bible knowledge should be leading us to, love. Because here's the truth. All of our theology and all the blessings that God pours out on us, all our spiritual gifts, all the things that we accomplish for God, all all of the skill set that we have, all these good things can lead us right down a path to idolatry. And how do we know this? History tells us. You know, it's been said that a smart man learns from his mistakes, but a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. It's also been said, for those who fail to learn from history, they're doomed to repeat it. And I'll be honest, far too often, I have not followed that wisdom. (laughs) I I like to think I'm an exception to most rules. Oh, yeah, they made that mistake, but it's going to be different for me. Maybe you're too mature for that. Maybe you scour the history books, and you look at all the mistakes people have made, and you go, thank you, fools. Not me, not today. Thanks for making all the mistakes so I don't have to make them. Probably not, right? (laughs) But listen, we do ourselves a disservice if we disregard history if we ignore history and the lessons that it has for us. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, that these things took place as examples for us. Why are there so many stories in the Bible? Why is there so much history in the Bible? Well, to teach us about the incredible plan of God to save sinners and restore and renew all things through Jesus Christ? Yes, absolutely but also to teach us and shape us through the example of God's people of the past. See, in verse 6, the word example in the Greek is the word tupos, or tupoi, not tupac, tupos, (laughs) which means type. (laughs) So I just completely lost you. (laughs) It means type, which is an example that is meant 
to form into shape, a model that is meant to form into shape. It's not an example just for our historical database. It's not just for our biblical knowledge of, oh yeah, that thing happened and we learn about that thing and just kind of chalk that up into my Bible knowledge in my brain. No, it's meant to be an example that actually shapes us. We study biblical history to be shaped by biblical history. And if we fail to study biblical history and learn from biblical history, we are failed to be shaped in biblical history. Because here's what the past teaches us, is that God has woven into the fabric of existence certain truths. He's built into the foundation certain truths about the way things are. The same God, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what we have to recognize, or what we have to ask ourselves, is history going to be a gracious teacher to us, or are the truths and the stark reality that it holds out for us going to come crashing down into our lives? Will we learn from history humbly, or will we pridefully disregard it? We say it has no relevance. This is the question that the Apostle Paul presses on the Corinthians and presses on us this morning as well. This is what God's word holds out for us. The title of my message this morning is The Past Don't Play. And here's what the past teaches us. Two important truths. First is, prideful presumption leads to judgment and humble dependence leads to rescue. Prideful presumption leads to judgment, but humble dependence leads to rescue. And so let's, let's go to God's word this morning and learn from the past. Let's be shaped by biblical history and these important truths in order to be transformed by Jesus Christ. And so let's spend some time first looking at the prideful presumption that history points us to. At the beginning of chapter 10, the Apostle Paul actually points to some positive things in Israel's history. This is what he writes. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, and now the word ancestors there can be used to talk about ethnic ancestors, so people in your family, and also spiritual ancestors. So he's not just talking to Jews, he's talking to God's people. Our ancestors are all of God's people. He wanted them to understand that their ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So Paul starts by highlighting these incredible blessings that God gave to his people, that while Israel slaved away for 400 years in Egypt, oppressed, enslaved to an oppressive system, and also enslaved to sin in many ways. But God displays his power by sending Moses. And in that, he puts his power on display by showing that he is sovereign over the false gods of Egypt, he's sovereign over nature, and he's sovereign over death itself. And in all of that powerful display, he sets Israel free. And when he sets them free, he leads them out of Egypt with a cloud. Now, now, what's a cloud doing in the sky leading the people of God out of Egypt? Well, cloud imagery is all over Scripture. And what cloud imagery points to is the presence of God. This is the Spirit of God physically manifest. And why a cloud? 
Well, here's the beautiful thing about a cloud. If you're in the wilderness, if you're in the wilderness of Egypt, in the desert of the Middle East, and the sun is scorching you, it's beating down on you, what is a cloud going to provide? Shade, shelter, relief. God was hovering above them. This is beautiful. There's a word in Deuteronomy that talks about God hovering over his people in the cloud. It's the same word. It's the only other time that it's used in Genesis 1 about the spirit hovering over the waters before creation. That God is hovering over his people. He's protecting them. He's caring for them, leading them by his spirit, his very presence. So God leads them by a cloud. And then he baptizes them in the Red Sea. You know the story where the the army of Egypt is coming, is bearing down on them. And so God splits the Red Sea so they can pass through. And then Egypt tries to do the same thing and God brings the water down and brings judgment on them. This is referred to as a kind of baptism. God was cleansing them from the stain and sin of Egypt. And he baptizes them into Moses, meaning Moses is now God's chosen prophet and leader. And they were to follow him. Their identity was no longer following the Pharaoh of Egypt, but now God's chosen leader. And so they were baptized in to Moses. But it doesn't stop there. God also provides for them spiritual food. This is talking about both the source, meaning that this food was supernaturally given, but it also talks about the, the truth that God nourished them, not just physically, but also spiritually. He gave them food. He gave them the bread from heaven, the manna from heaven, and sent down quail and also the rock. There's twice where Moses hits a rock and water gushes out to provide water for them. And so God was with his people, blessing his people, providing for his people. He saves them, he's with them, and he sustains them. All of these wonderful blessings. God says, my people, I'm going to rescue you from slavery and sin. I'm going to be with you. My spirit is going to shelter and guide you. And I'm going to provide for you body and soul. You would think, in light of all that, the people of Israel would be like, let's be faithful. <laughs> let's be faithful. Yes, Lord, all day long. I mean, isn't this how we typically think? God, if you will just redeem me and provide for me and be with me, I will be faithful. We, we pray that. We think that. We expect that. Yet what does Paul say? In verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Something went wrong. All of this blessing, God's presence, his provision, his salvation, and nevertheless, God was displeased. And how do we know? Because God was bagging bodies. This is a harsh way to put it, but, but in the Greek, it's literally God was strewing bodies throughout the wilderness. Why? What we see later in verse 6, they were desiring evil things. And then Paul fills this out. First, they became idolaters. And then he quotes Exodus 32, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. So this is a reference to the story of the golden calf. So Moses had gone up on the mountain to meet with God. And before that, God's presence had come down on the mountain. He set this mountain on fire. He's like, Moses, come up. And Moses was like, do I sure I want to do this? Okay, God invited me. I'm going to go meet with him. God is giving Moses the law, the holy law, which why people, the people of God were to, be, to live. And what were the rest of the people doing? They were down worshiping a golden calf. Now, what's important to, to point out here is this, this whole idea they got up to party. 
In the Hebrew, the idea here is they got up to play. There was a childishness. There was an immaturity. There was this sense that, hey, the seriousness of what is happening and who we are in the Lord doesn't matter. Let's get up and throw a frat party. That's basically the, the tone and tenor of what they were doing. This wasn't some solemn religious ritual where they were bowing down to a golden calf. They were throwing a frat party. Idolatry. But not only idolatry. They also committed sexual immorality. This is a reference to Numbers 25 where they began to chase after the, women, the men of Israel, began to chase after the women of other nations and began to sleep with them and have illicit sexual relationship with them. They stopped trusting in the Lord. They stopped caring about God for some action. And they became sexually immoral. And it also says that they tested God and they grumbled and they complained. There, there was a, a time where they said, God, you're out. you just brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. Moses, you just brought us out here so you could kill us. And no trust in God's provision, no trust in God's salvation, rather grumbling and accusing God of wanting to kill them. You double-crossed us. And in all of this, God brings judgment. Now, you may think, man, that's harsh. Well, if you go back and read Exodus and Numbers, you read the story, you'll find out that God was incredibly gracious, incredibly patient, he waited a long time before he started dropping bodies. He was patient to a point where the sin got so bad, so destructive, had overtaken his people to such a degree that judgment needed to come. Sin needed to be dealt with. Judgment needed to happen. And so people started dying various ways. He mentions snakes. One time God sends poisonous snakes Another time he sends an avenging angel, similar to what he sent through Egypt. Another time he opened the ground and a bunch of people fell in, swallowed them up. God does not take sin lightly. Now, we can ask the question, what happened? How, how did it go from celebration, grace, provision, to thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people dying? Well, the people of Israel became prideful. They became prideful in the sense that they decided that there were things greater than God, that their status, their comforts, their pleasure, their security were greater than following and be obedient to the glory of God. That they were going to grab those things for themselves. They were going to chase after whatever false God they thought would give them those things. God, we don't care about what you said about sexual morality. We're going to go get our pleasure. God, we don't care what you, that, that one time you rescued and redeemed. We don't care that you split open the sea to save us. We know that you're no good. Pride. There was a sense of that, that they knew better than God, that what they wanted mattered, that they got to set the agenda. Their status, their enjoyment, their comfort, their power, that is what called the shots. They also were prideful in the sense that they presumed on grace, meaning we're the people of God. We're somebody. We have status. God owes us. And if we cross the line, well, God will still provide. 
God brought us into the wilderness, and he needs to give us what we need when we need it. They presumed upon the Lord. Prideful presumption. Now, what does this have to do with the Corinthians? Well, the Corinthians were in a similar spot. The Corinthians were deciding that their status, their success, their wealth, their pleasure triumphed over the glory of God. That they could make demands on God and get what they wanted when they wanted it. The chasing after success and status and knowledge and and position in the church, all of that was greater than honoring and glorifying God. Prideful. Their agendas set the agenda. What they wanted, they got. And it didn't matter the cost. It didn't matter if they sinned. In fact, they started using theology to justify sin. And there was also this presumption of grace. If If you trace back... How, where we've come so far in 1 Corinthians, you see there's this incredible amount of presumption on the part of the Corinthians that they think, you know, God is a God of salvation in Christ and if, if we sin, well then, there's going to be grace. God, we're, we're the people of God after all. And so they begin to, to, to believe that they had license to sin because God was a God who saved. Oh, I can be sinful, I can be unwise because God will redeem this. Do you know what Galatians 6 tells us? That, that, that w- what happens when you know something is a sin and you will justify that sin by saying God will redeem? You know what you are? A mocker. And Galatians 6 tells us God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. The Galatians were pridefully presumptive about the grace of God. They were becoming mockers. Arrogant rebellious, turning the gifts and grace of God on its head to serve their own needs and their own purposes rather than it causing them to be humble before the face of God. First City Church, we can look back at Israel and we go, there's no way. If I saw the Red Sea parted, if I saw God do what he did in Egypt, if I saw bread falling from heaven and water flying out of a rock supernaturally, I'd be faithful. If I saw the supernatural things God was doing in Corinth, I'd be faithful. Here's what Paul says to us, the same thing he says to the Corinthians in verse 12. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. You think you're any different. I think I'm any different. We think we're any different. We think the past doesn't apply to us. We think the past has nothing to teach us. We can kind of look at them and go, oh, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't be like that, but uh, we're not really like that. No. The same prideful presumption lives in my heart, lives in your heart, lives in our hearts. We need to take heed lest we fall. We need to pay attention and be careful and recognize, look, we presume and we are prideful. We so quickly so quickly start to set our own agendas. We so quickly say, God, you know what? I got it. We not not say that vocally, but functionally we live that way. That I'm going to live by my own agenda. I'm going to chase after my comfort, chase after my status. I'm going to go get mine, God. And then we also 
accuse God of not being good when we don't get what we want? Do we not grumble? God, why aren't you giving me what I want? God, how could you not be good? Why are you not taking care of me? Why are you not providing for me? And then we start to charge God as being callous and cruel. You tricked me. You made me believe that if I followed you, I'd be blessed. And then we presume on grace. How do we presume on grace? I'll admit, I'll admit, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I do this in a moment, but I, I've plenty of times have looked back and I've gone, there's grace for this sin, why not? So often we can justify, we can take sin lightly, we can minimize sin because of grace. We decide because there's grace and God is gracious and he's, he is steadfast love and he, he's abundant in Christ that maybe sin isn't that big a deal. Oh, yeah, no, it's not that big a deal. God's kind of like, well, yeah, you, you know, you gave it your best shot. It's okay. Brothers and sisters, <laughs> grace never excuses sin. Grace never, ever calls us to go, hey, you know what? It's not that big a deal. God will redeem it so I can sin or I can be unwise. No, that's prideful presumption. The past don't play. The past don't play. Prideful presumption will lead to judgment. And if I can say this with all love, as your pastor, as your friend, listen, some of you all, you're walking that line. You're walking that line of prideful presumption. And, and here's, here's the good news for you, but here's what you also need to watch out for. If you belong to Jesus, if you've been truly transformed by Christ, the good news of the gospel is you belong to him and he's got you, but here's what's coming. Discipline. This is what the book of Hebrews tells us. Discipline, because God is a loving father and he disciplines those who belong to him. And that discipline isn't going to be pleasant. God is going to light you up. Some of you, the past don't play, and here's what you need to come to grips with. You're playing games. Like, you come to church, you do the religious thing, you've been baptized, you've experienced blessings, you, you've been part of the community, but your heart isn't regenerate. Like, you're, you're faking it. It's like you're truly not a Christian, if I can put it in stark terms. And here's why. Because the glory of God means little to you, if not anything to you. Like there's no love, there's no desire. The glory of Christ is just something that you sort of go along with because, hey, you get something from it. And you're playing games. There's a prideful presumption that that's just okay and, you, and God doesn't notice because he hasn't rocked your world. Where do you think that's going to lead where do you think the end of that prideful presumption is? God just like, good job faking it. No, the end of prideful presumption, as God's word tells us, as history tells us, is judgment. And I, I, my heart is heavy. This is, this is a heavy text. <laughs> this is an easy text to preach. But here's what we need to recognize, church. Look, we're a gospel-centered church. We love the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hold out the grace of God that can save any sinner, 
doesn't matter how dark your sin, how deep that hole you've been in Jesus Christ, his grace reaches down and saves you. That's the hope and the promise we have we're going to see here in a few minutes. But the grace of God is not to be presumed upon. We can't be flippant about it. We can't minimize sin and play games with God because he is a gracious and steadfast and loving God. We don't treat God like grace is some sort of like magic mantra. It's a spell. Well, if I sin and then I say the right words, then God is on the hook to save me and forgive me. You think you can do that to God? <laughs> you think you can put God in your debt and manipulate him with a magic mantra? I know there's some Christians that talk that way, but the Bible says no. <laughs> the past don't play. Prideful presumption leads to judgment, my brothers and sisters. God is zealous for his glory and he's zealous for the purity of his people. Like who Paul is looking at is not the world. The world is going to world. The world is going to do its thing. God cares about his people and the purity of his people that they would not presume on grace, but would actually respond in humility to grace. That they would be transformed by grace, that they would take holiness seriously because God is holy. And so this is the other thing that the past teaches. If the past don't play, it teaches us that prideful presumption leads to judgment, but here's what it also teaches us. That humble dependence leads to rescue. Humble dependence leads to rescue. Here's what Paul goes on to say in verse 13. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you are able to bear it. Friends, in the midst of our temptation, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of the sin that is in our heart, God is faithful. God, God is faithful to help us through that. We don't have to give in to sin. We don't have to be defeated by sin. No, God is faithful to meet us in that. But how does that happen? Through humility. The call in verse 13 is humility. First, it's just recognizing this. Hey, the temptation you're experiencing, it's normal. It's not something that is just unique to you. Now, the, the Corinthians and the, 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 the prideful Corinthians, the one that were, that were asserting sort of like, I'm spiritually mature, they were complaining, throwing this sort of pity party that this, you don't understand, Paul, the, the temptations that we're under, the things you're asking us to do. And Paul's like, calm down. <laughs> the temptations you're experiencing are the same for everybody. You're not a special snowflake. And it requires the humility to say, I'm just like everybody else. The same sin lives in my heart. The same temptations come my way. Yeah, it might look a little different from one person to the next, but it's the same thing. And in that, there is humility. One, there's hope because it's like, hey, you're not, you're not unique. God didn't go, oh boy, I've never seen that before. No. We're the same. And that brings humility. Humility. We humble ourselves before the Lord and say, this is normal. I'm going to experience temptation. And then humility leads us to look to God. Humility leads us to say, God is faithful. 
And rescue comes through humble dependence. It's when I depend upon the Lord that I experience rescue and grace. And packed within the stories that the Apostle Paul points to in, this, in 1 Corinthians 10 are stories of God's rescue. Israel was grumbling and complaining, but they also got around to calling out to God for provision, and so God provides them the bread from heaven and the quail and the water from a rock. When, when God sent the serpents to stri- <clears throat> excuse me, strike the people dead, and the people begin to cry out in repentance, God tells Moses, hey, fashion an image of a snake, put it up on a pole, and tell them everyone who looks at this image is saved. And when God was going through and sending the avenging angel to wipe out the people. He has Aaron make atonement for the people as they cry out and depend upon the Lord. God is always quick to rescue when there is humble dependence upon him. Israel was called to humble dependence because in that was rescue. This is what the past teaches us. God's faithful. God is so faithful. And here's the good news for us, you and me. Because as much as Israel had a reason to be concerned and also to have hope, we have more. Because as Paul says in verse 11, we are those like the Corinthians on whom the end of the ages has come. What does that mean? It means we're in the final stage of history. I don't know if that final stage will last one more day or a thousand more years, but here's what the Bible teaches is that when Christ came, he ushered in the last days, the end of the age. Why? What does that mean? It's because Christ is the highest revelation of Scripture. No more new revelation. No, no more revelation about God's plan. The fullest expression, Jesus Christ himself. There he is. There's nothing more of God's plan that needs to be revealed. All that we're waiting for is to Christ to wrap it up. And because of that, we have more knowledge than Israel did. I mean, Paul points out that, that the rock they drank from was Christ. They didn't know that, but we know that. It, it, it says that they were actually testing Christ. They didn't know that, but we know that. We know the fullest revelation of God. We have more light than they do because we're those who are at the end of the age. And because of that, we see the plan of God. If Israel had reason to hope in God, we have all the more. Israel had a parted sea, we had a crucified Savior. <laughs> Israel had manna from heaven, we have the very bread of life. <laughs> they had water from a rock, we have the very living water. Like our reason to hope, our reason for salvation is so much greater. The past teaches us that humble dependence leads to rescue. And we don't just look back at Israel, we look back and we see Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected for sinners. Oh, it's such, a, it's such a beautiful interweaving of biblical themes here because when you consider the example, if I can geek out here for a second, <laughs> when you consider the example of water from a rock, if you go to Exodus 17, this incredible moment happens where, where God says, I-, I want you to strike this rock and my presence is actually going to be on the rock. And so Moses takes that staff, which is a sign of his authority and judgment that God gave him, and he strikes the rock, meaning he strikes through the presence of God. Judgment on the presence of God. What is that picture? Christ taking our judgment. And what happens when God takes that? Living water flows out. When Christ was crucified, living water. And then what Jesus tells Nicodemus, right before that famous passage, John 3, 16, and John 13 and 14, what does Jesus say? As Moses lifted the serpent up in the 
heir and all who look to it were saved, the Son of Man will be lifted up and everyone who looks to him will experience eternal life. That image of the serpent, a cursed object, Jesus became the curse for us so that we look to him in humble dependence and find rescue. Friends, sobering passage, but incredible grace. (laughs) Sobering passage, sobering warning, but in that is packaged this incredible reason to hope because God is faithful. God is faithful. And so when you're tempted, when you are tempted, God has not left you on your own. When you are tempted, God has made a way to escape. What's that way, you may ask? Look to Jesus. (laughs) Follow Jesus. God is going to lead you himself. Look to him. And that way of escape will be made. And so let, let me just say this. If you are in need of some serious repentance, whether it is just because you have allowed yourself to fall in a pattern of idolatry or whether you have not turned, from Christ, turned to Christ at all, there's hope for you this morning. God holds out his grace in Jesus Christ. Look to the living water. Look to the rock that was struck that you may be forgiven and may have life. Look to the one who was lifted up as a cursed serpent that you may have life. Look to the one who has made atonement for every sin that you may be forgiven and have life and escape God's judgment. Christ took the judgment that you and I deserved so that we could be rescued. Look to him. And for those of you that have, here's the great hope for you. Christ has poured out his spirit on you. He's broken the power of sin in your life, broken the power of death. Yes, we will contend with sin until we die or until Christ returns. We'll have to wrestle through it. But don't let anybody tell you you can't have victory over sin. Through the power of the Spirit, you can have victory. Through the power of the Spirit, you can overcome temptation. When you look to Christ, when you trust in the faithfulness of God, you can overcome. He's given you everything you need. Everything you need. And so church, the past don't play. It shows us that prideful presumption leads to judgment, but more than that, it shows us that humble dependence leads to rescue. So I want to close with this. I want to both honor the soberness of this passage, but also point us to the hope by reading from Hebrews 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters so that there won't be in any of you such an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily what is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception, for we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end. Church, the past on play. Prideful presumption leads to judgment. 
But humble dependence leads to rescue. Let us be those who are humbly dependent upon God, who lay down our idolatry, lay down our sin, lay down our agendas, lay down trying to control our own lives, and look to the one who is life, living water, bread from heaven, our redemption and our rescue. Amen. Let's pray.